When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we talk western upland hunting, pointing dogs, and flushing dogs with Maddie Rollinson of Heritage Gun Dogs. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 171. Welcome to the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Great to have you for this episode of the show and our upcoming interview with Maddie Rollinson of Heritage Gundogs. First, thank you, of course, to the Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Your continued support is always appreciated. Got an Onyx Elite subscription out the door last week to our March Patreon giveaway winner. For April, we've got another Onyx Hunt Elite subscription card, or I've also got a pair of shooting gloves from Final Rise. This is not the first and only giveaway that we will have upcoming this year from Final Rise, but this is the first one. I've got a pair of the shooting gloves that Matt Davis and his team from Final Rise released last year. Matt sent them to me. They are a size medium, and they were just a little bit off for me. I need a different size. So I am making those size medium gloves available to Patreon supporters in our upcoming giveaway. They are a sized item, so this will be a winner's choice of sorts. You can choose the Onyx Elite subscription card, or if you're interested in the Final Rise shooting gloves, you can check those out at finalrise.com. Look up the field gloves on the website, and they've got a couple paragraphs there about the sizing information. So check that out if a size medium seems like it would be right for you. And I will, of course, remind any and all upcoming Patreon giveaway winners about those gloves until they are taken 
But as I mentioned, that won't be the last giveaway from Final Rise. Stay tuned. Might be a little something else coming your way to the Patreon supporters. Maybe a vest. We'll see. But thank you to all those currently supporting and considering that. Starts at 5 bucks a month. We'll get you some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers as a little gift package. And you're eligible for all Patreon monthly giveaways. Patreon.com forward slash Birdshot. All right, don't forget, leave the Birdshot Podcast a rating, a review, subscribe to the show, follow the show, whatever you can do in the podcast app that you're listening to. Little things that go a long way in helping support the Birdshot Podcast and keeping the show coming your way. Every little bit helps, and I thank you for it. And another winner to announce, I forgot to do this on the last episode, actually. This goes back to our Lars Jacob wing shooting episode. We offered up a gun fitting slash wing shooting instruction with Lars Jacob for those interested. So this was open to anyone that could conceivably get to Lars's location and meet up with him for shooting instruction. I was pleasantly surprised at the amount of interest we had from folks, given that it was tied to a geographic location, but we had 34 entries in all, and the lucky winner was Dan Colby, Canadian listener of the show, but within striking distance of... Lars. So congrats to Dan. He and I were chatting a bit back and forth about the grouse hunting up north of the border, as well as some of the walleye fishing that he and I have done in in the great province of Ontario over the years. But thanks to Dan for tuning into the show and congrats again to him. I will be connecting him and Lars Jacob this week so they can work out that shooting and fitting instruction. Thanks to all those that expressed interest and sent me their feedback and thoughts on the show. That was a really great episode. And I heard from a lot of people that enjoyed it as well. So it was a really cool thing. And thanks again to Lars Jacob for offering to do that in conjunction with us at Upland Gun Company, the Birdshot Podcast. That was a neat giveaway. And I'm really excited for Dan to go spend a little time doing some shotgunning with Lars Jacob. That ought to be fun. And I think that's it for me. We're halfway through April already. I'm looking ahead to a little spring turkey hunting. Towards the end of the month, there is a fundraiser shoot for the Minnesota Sharptail Grouse Association in Minnesota that I am hopeful to attend along with some of my companions at the Upland Gun Company. That should be fun. If anybody out there listening is going to be there, hope to see you there. Hope you're all out getting out and enjoying some nice spring weather. We got another five inches of snow in Duluth last night, April 17th. It definitely wants to melt, but we keep getting more of it. So I keep shoveling, praying for sunshine, and hoping that just maybe one of these times will be the last time I push a shovel across my driveway until, eh, if we're lucky, eight months from now. I doubt it, but wouldn't that be nice? All right, let's get into it. Today's episode with Maddie Rawlinson of formerly OV Wing Shooting, soon-to-be Heritage Gun Dogs. He talks about it on the episode, so you can check that out. We've got information for Maddie in the show notes. Had a very enjoyable conversation with Maddie. He's out in California, talked a lot of western hunting, early season prairie sharp-till grouse and hunt hunting. We mix in a lot of bird dog conversation. Maddie has experience training and hunting with both pointing dogs and flushing dogs, so we got into that quite a bit. And I think if those subjects are of interest to you, you will enjoy this episode. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast of Heritage Gun Dogs, Maddie Rawlinson. All right. I can see the red light on. We are 
recording. Maddie, welcome to the Bird Shop Podcast, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. Been looking forward to this. You and I have chatted a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, and I'm still looking out the window at snow, and I suspect that you being in California, you're not seeing any of that right now, are you, Maddie? Uh, no, we had about, on, yesterday we had approximately 10 inches of wind. It was, uh, just <laughs> absolutely, yeah, that, that's what happens this time of year where I am kind of in the lowland desert sort of, or the sort of, uh, high desert, sorry, not lowland, but, um, yeah, the wind seems to, this time of year, the wind seems to just rip. So it's kind of nice. And then all of a sudden it'll be like gusts up to 40 miles an hour and you yeah, you're holding on to your hat and it's just kind of nasty outside and your eyes are hurting as the sand just pelting you in the face. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're dealing with right now. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> what have you been up to lately? It is it is springtime. It's uh, it's kind of dog training season, right? Yeah, it's, uh, we're in this sort of transitional period right now where I just came off of... Um, a field trial, pretty intense field trial season. We uh, with uh, spaniels, cockers, and springers. Okay. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a nice string of a couple of my own personal dogs, and then some client dogs that I was campaigning on behalf of some clients. And that kicks off typically in January, and then rolls all the way through until about now. I just went to my last field trial this weekend um and that'll be that's the last one of the spring for me anyway there's a couple more but it's yeah it, it's sort of in my area on the west coast kind of thing it's that sort of ties it all up so from january through to now we went to ooh, seven field tri- seven trials i think uh so that's like pretty much like seven weekends um and so yeah and that requires a whole sort of different a uh, different set of training and skills and getting prepared for that stuff. Um, and honestly, now that's over. I think all the dogs and myself can kind of have a sigh of relief because it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of intense training and it's just like, oh my God, it's over. So now we're uh, hit the, hit another reset button and we are moving into spring training uh, for all breeds of dogs. Every, you know, all the guys who got young pups this time last year or kind of through the winter yeah. um at some point and now kind of uh they're in that phase where they're looking to oh you know getting phone calls which is great about oh i got a six month old dog trying to get it you know doing basic bird gun intro that kind of thing or somebody has an older dog that they're wanting to sort of get either woe broke or steadied up on birds or something something of that nature uh so we're just transitioning out of all the field trial dogs are going home uh, and then all of the sort of uh, other, all the other dogs, pointing dogs and flushing dogs are now coming sort of slowly starting to trickle in Yeah. Uh, for the sort of spring, spring training and sort of out and out through the summer, basically getting ready to roll around for the bird season. So yes, yeah, the ever ending cycle of, <laughs> yes, the annual cycle of, of hunting season and then wishing it was hunting season, but, absolutely filling up yep. our time yep. you know with keeping keeping busy with the dog sounds like you've definitely done so <laughs> yeah yeah always yeah always well i want to i do want to i've got some questions on the english cockers and springers i want to talk about that but let's we've we sort of beat around it here a little bit but let's get a basic intro from you kind of establish where you are you're out west but 
talk a little bit about the components of kind of what keeps you busy in the bird dog world? Sure. Um, I run sort of a gun dog training and outfitting guiding deal. Um, it was formerly owned Valley Wing Shooting. It's now being rebranded for many different reasons, which I won't go into, but uh, it's new fancy name is going to be Heritage Gun Dogs and Outfitters. Um, nice. Just <clears throat> And then... So that's what I, that's the business. And then throughout the hunting season from September, uh, kind of September through to mid November, I'm up in Montana. Okay. That's a lie. Sorry. From, <laughs> uh, no, from August through, uh, to mid November, I'm in Montana. Uh, first part of it is training. Uh, I do a summer camp up there for pointing and flushing dogs. Uh, just so you can get in the mountain wild bird contacts before the season starts and just some general tune-up and training. And then I guide for an outfitter up there, pro outfitters, uh, for a couple of months. And then come home, Bishop, California is where I reside. I don't know where my kennels are. And I do a little bit of guiding around here. It's, it's very limited, um, but I do a little bits and pieces. And then... So December and what are you what are you camp. guiding for back there in California? Mainly, um, mainly valley quail and chucker, okay. and and mountain quail. That seems to be just uh, seems like people tr- are trying to sort of typically complete their quail slams. Okay, and so mountain quail is often the kind of the last the last straw, which is something we have not necessarily in abundance, but we certainly have them around here and there. Yeah, they're about as promiscuous of a bird as you could possibly try to hunt. So, uh, yeah, I get uh, <clears throat> that's another sort of um, inquiry about that stuff. And then in sort of December, January, hopefully for this season, uh, we will be down in Arizona mm-hmm. for about six weeks. Um, kind of a new deal that's just come about uh, running on. Uh, Moon's scale and gamble's quail down there. Awesome. Um, and that, so, and then come home and then sort of come home mid January and then it will be, uh, straight into, uh, training or all the spaniel clients, you know, clients, spaniels will show up. Uh, yeah, that kind of leads so right into, move, your, <laughs> leads your, right into, yeah, yeah, exactly. Then yep. Field, field trial season for the, for the springers and cocker spaniels. Yep. Awesome. And that's, uh, yeah. And now we're going back. Yeah. The circle is complete. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Have you hunted down in Arizona before, Manny? Yeah. I've hunted down there quite a bit. Um, okay. yeah, it's a pretty unique place, really cool terrain, tough terrain, rugged. It looks, I think most people think, oh, it's nice rolling hills. And then you yeah. realize there's sort of rocks the size of baseballs everywhere underneath that grass. Yeah. Um, so it can be, it can be pretty tough on dogs and, and, and humans alike. So, uh, yeah, but it's, it's stunning country down there. And those birds, the birds down there, I mean, those moons quail are really special. Like, and the, their covey rises are, I mean, staggeringly exciting. They can so, be, uh, I mean, upwards of 20, 30 birds, can't they? Uh, I, think more realistically maybe like a 12 oh, okay. like a 16 bird covey is typical but they're it's it's how they kind of explode out of there it's mm. they're kind of they get out of jail free card the way they kind of try and escape getting uh predators is 
by holding ridiculously tight yeah and then when they go they uh, it's it's like a flash you're like whoa okay that <laughs> there they go that happened um so yeah they're just they're magical little birds um that i think uh yeah they're yeah, they're a lot of fun to hunt. It definitely extremely explosive. When you talk about the scenery, I, I have I haven't been down there to hunt. I definitely can picture, you know, the stuff you typically see. Sort of like, you know, you might see some hills and canyon like country, but you see those little oak trees and that beautiful golden grass yep. and the blue sky. And yeah, it, it does look like a like a nice enjoyable place to go for a walk. But I'm I'm sure it's uh, the outside looking in beautiful scenery aspect of it. Uh, yeah absolutely yeah it's but it's i think a lot of people may you know classically oh it's the desert it's this this right flat kind of (laughs) cactus everywhere that sort of thing um but uh, there is cactus and stuff but it's yeah it's steep it's hilly it's it's rocky rocky and rugged terrain it's hard it's it's surprisingly hard work i think a lot of people um if they're not used to that sort of struggle or they get down there and they're kind of like oh they had no idea it was sort of going to be as hilly and mountainous as it actually is, uh, which is, uh, it's yeah, it's really neat country down there. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty De- unusual. Definitely on my, my list to go do at some point. I don't have any, I don't have any plans to do it yet, but obviously yeah, I'd like to do all of the hunts that people talk about it. Every, every place has its own unique nature and aspects of hunting. Of course we'd, all love to go do everything but it is what it is we've only <laughs> yeah. got so much time and so much dog power right uh yeah absolutely yeah i think i think that hunt in general is high on a lot of people's lists yeah um which i don't blame them just because it's it's a beautiful place to be in the depths of winter right yeah it's a time it's a timing <laughs> and, thing too yeah yeah and yeah it's i get asked you know sometimes by people oh what would be your you know kind of you know i guess like dream hunt or I guess that you haven't been on, but ironically, I've, I've done a lot of hunting out West, obviously, um, just because of being here, but I would say probably the top of my list would actually be going and hunting, uh, rough grouse and woodcock out in the Northwoods where you are. Cause that's something, something so foreign to me, right. so different that I haven't really experienced. I, I get to experience a touch of it in Montana or pretend like it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as there's some rough and blue grouse up there, which I like to hunt the spaniels on in the kind of early season in September. But um, yeah, it's not, uh, you know, I kind of watch those videos and stuff and it's nothing quite, it's not, you know, like a big thick patch of Aspen or whatever. You're just like, Oh, that's Yeah. It's just different, different, something completely different. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that plays into like the listeners will know I've started making trips out West to hunt the early season prairies. And that, you know, that's just such a stark contrast compared to, you know, the, the heart of my upland season being in the rough grouse and woodcock woods. And I just like, I am just infatuated with that September prairie hunt for many reasons, but it's just so different than, you know, getting to see the dogs run different country and point different birds. And yeah, it's, I think that's, that's similar across the board for everybody. Yeah. I think there's, there's nothing that time of year, early September is there's, I don't think in my mind anyway, there's nothing more picturesque than a gorgeous pointing dog clipping through the prairies out there and, you know, establishing a point on a, on a group of sharp tail. I mean, that's, I mean, I feel like that's sort of the epitome of the West that time of year anyway. And yeah, that, that's, 
definitely the reason that draws me to Montana every season because there's there's that time of year there's no place I'd rather be. Yeah. Um it's just I think that's absolutely stunning up there and <clears throat> the scenery, the country and the terrain and the birds uh, all of it, yeah, and the fact that you get to watch these gorgeous pointing dogs move out there and find these birds that are kind of just <clears throat> not really um once you hunt sharp tail a little bit, you can kind of get a feeling for where they might be. But typically, it's the giant hillside, and you're like, I don't know, somewhere up there. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. just going to be out there loafing around, and yeah, uh, it, so that's yeah, that's why you need those, you know, nice sort of bigger running pointing dog, and and that's uh, I think that's an interesting deal too. I think people think sharp tail are easy, uh, which I disagree with. They're, they're perhaps easy to shoot they're not maybe the most challenging of birds mm -hmm. to shoot yep. but if you have a dog that in sort of the end of september october that can get sharp tails pointed you've got yourself a really good dog i think it will typically be able to get i guess that's sort of my uh, acid test if you like of a good a dog is if you've got one that can get sharp tails pointed later season uh, typically they go on to then be able to point lots of different, you know, any bird really. If it can handle sharp tails late season, they can handle pretty much any bird. Um, and not, not every dog can, can do it or can do it as well, but that would be, that's kind of my, uh, my little test of a good bird dog, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And I think so, to dive into that a little bit further, I'm familiar with the conversation. I've only been out there you would say relatively early season, you know, mid, mid September to just get into that third week of September. So I personally don't feel that I, that I have seen that. And I, I would sort of agree with what you say. Like I, I'm always, I would always be reluctant to use the word easy, but in going out there three or four years, like the ability to pattern, pattern the birds and kind of find what the cover needs to look like i felt like the the learning curve wasn't so dramatically steep that you know i can go out there and be successful pretty much on my own at this point of course i had a lot of help along the way but definitely shooting opportunities in in those on those early season sharp tails are are not the most challenging that's for sure but you know it's 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 really about being out there watching the dogs run and getting some getting some great dog work i mean that's that's what the whole thing is exciting in that regard but i've heard many people talk about the birds they get more challenging right they get more grouped up and are they just jumpier so you need a you need a more cautious dog or... yeah they yeah and they just get a lot uh yeah they get a lot smarter and wiser yeah. and the yeah that's that's really the deal yeah and they just get a little more they get a, a little less predictable in terms of where they're going to be okay. that time of year and so the dogs have to also kind of the dogs have to kind of re almost recalibrate where to look for them um and that's yeah i think that was a, a good way to say it but um they yeah they just become more challenging your dogs have to have really good manners around them because mm. they get a lot more they just get a lot flightier and you can see it sometimes. I mean, you'll pull up and just slam a car door and yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, there, there they go. I guess they didn't, you know, and that can happen, um, especially later on in the year. Um, and they can group up like crazy. Like you'll drive past the field and you're like, oh, my God, there's 100 sharp tails out there. And uh, <laughs> you'll never get good luck getting close to them, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, they just become 
they for whatever reason they yeah the early season they're they're not as challenging and they definitely within by the end of september they're definitely a whole that they're, they're almost like a different bird yeah um in in their behaviors and how they react to a dog being near them and so yeah a dog just has to have uh it has to switch its tactics perhaps and uh and that's really where you find find the sort of uh, that that sets the that sets a good pointing dog apart put it that way is there a constant thread like while while the majority of birds perhaps wisen up if if i could say it that way get get more wary um and and get more challenging like let's say you want to go out and hunt sharp tails every single day from september you know through november or whatever you know can your dogs go out and get get some pointed every day i mean you you could find a group and, yeah. and get them pointed i mean it's not like not like you just quit doing it right uh correct yeah you can absolutely yeah and uh, and if you spend you know the more time you spend in an area the i would say sharp tails in general are kind of more a bit more like um a big game animal i've not ever hunted any four-legged creatures but i know enough people who have and the way they talk about like you know seeing that mule deer they want to get and they pattern it oh it comes you know it comes down off this hill every day and it comes and gets a drink here and it wallows here and it feeds in this field over here that sort of thing sharp tail early season they fly massive distances but typically they're like creatures of habit yeah so they'll be you know it'll be like okay at like four o'clock most afternoons they like to be up on loafing up on this bench or early mornings they like to be down the bottom of this field you know just sort of grabbing a drink or feeding on grasshoppers or that sort of thing and so even so they fly these huge distances they're kind of they are sort of a bit easier to pattern like that kind of like a big game animal and then so you might find a field and you go you look at it and you're you know you <clears throat> everything you read about sharp tails and where they live this particular piece like ticks all those boxes and you're like okay well you might walk that field in the morning and not find any birds i wouldn't necessarily give up on that mm. field i would then maybe go back in the afternoon and then you might find birds in the afternoon and you go oh okay this is an, a spot for them in the afternoon not a morning spot and you know and vice versa so you can get places like that where you're like oh this is they like to be they like this area in the mornings okay or they like this area for whatever reason this is an afternoon spot for them or this is a morning spot for them that seems to be their sort of you know their feeding habits or their you know what they like to do whether it's huns up there from my experience of huns where kind of i'm based out of they kind of like live and die in the same square mile but you have to try and find them in that same square mile they're a lot trickier to they're not you can't sort of pattern them the same as in like you'll be like oh i saw a covey of huns here cool they're gonna be in this area somewhere but it might take us half the day to find that mm. covey yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? They're, they're just not they're not as predictable sharp tail a little more predictable i guess yeah of where they might be or where you know where they their habits anyway yeah that um that the habits component that definitely uh, i was reading an article over the weekend i'm like i got a stack of magazines as you know most people probably do i'm like way behind but this is like a shooting sportsman magazine from probably a year ago and uh there's a guy former guest of the show gerhardt stevenson do you know him 
He's out west. Uh, uh, is he the guy who has a sheep? Yes, me? yes, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think uh, our mutual friend Travis. Exactly, uh, that's what I was going to mention. Yeah, yeah, he's been okay. on Travis's yeah. show. Yeah. And anyways, yeah, Gerhardt wrote an article about he was actually decoying sharp tails, and it was like kind of a it was a fun article, and like he was just wondering if it would work. And he talked a lot about in that article about paying attention to their routines and their habits because they are very habitual. And and I think there, he also was commenting about the morning spot versus the afternoon spot. And that kind of stuff, that's yeah. really helpful because I've, you know, when I mentioned earlier that I've had success in identifying likely sharp tail cover and going into it, you know, I not having a ton of experience and, you know, only doing it for about a week, a year, there have been plenty of times where I've gone into what I would say this is, you know, perfect habitat. I mean, it's the rolling pothole prairie. There's little knobs and hills with the right kind of grass. There's rose hips in there and maybe some snowberries. And I've seen it all, but you walk through there and you don't find any birds. And yes, it's hunting that's going to happen regardless. But I often wonder if sometimes you could tie that back to sort of that troubleshooting where you know, maybe this is an afternoon spot and not a morning spot. And, you know, I just don't yeah, have enough or, time to sort that out every year. <laughs> or you could, or it's a, or it's an early season or a late season spot. Sure. Um, I yeah. think if you, you know, guys out that way uh, who hunt sharp tail a lot could probably tell you or test to this that like some areas you look at and it ticks all that you know you've read this article yep. and whatever and you go you know and you, you pull up to a field and you go okay this ticks uh, yeah these are all that yep everything lines up okay and you go there and you're like i don't get it there's no birds here this yeah. doesn't make any sense this is like we've walked this field two or three times now nothing huh well you might walk that in early september well it's got it's got a certain type of feed and cover that the birds need for winter so they don't they're not in there right now and so but so in september they might not be there but come you know come october you suddenly go back there and you're like oh my god there's like a metropolis of birds in here yeah. because it has you know all those those hoppers maybe the grasshoppers have slowly died off or there's been a snowstorm that's come in there and and so that's sometimes we see we see Oh, or I should say, I see that a little bit too. It's like their their pattern, like, oh, it's getting towards the end of September now. They're probably not going to be in these areas anymore. They've probably moved into their kind of more their sort of winter loafing areas rather than their kind of summer areas. Uh, so you sort of see see that unfolding too. So they're, they're a really cool bird like that. I think they're yeah. really neat like that. Um, Whether it's, yeah, Huns, Huns aren't as Huns I find are not like that in terms of the the way to pattern them like that. They don't in my experience anyway, I don't I haven't sort of had that the same. Um but the Huns when the weather changes, that's typically when the Huns get a bit more predictable and you read about the classic Hun cover of like find the old farmhouse mm-hmm. with, you know, with some cut wheat <coughs> field with a little edge of cover and you'll find huns. I, I mean, I would say like later on in the year, that's pretty hit the nail on the head sort of thing. But earlier season, I mean, I've seen, I've moved coveys of huns in the mid, like up in the, up in like looking for blue grouse. And I'm just like, mm. what on earth are huns doing up <laughs> <laughs> in these in the trees like i don't this is crazy so they yeah they're a really uh interesting bird in that regard of they seem a lot more adaptable to different areas 
uh, until it's sort of then, you know, once winter starts to kind of come in, then the Huns seem to like move to those more atypical areas that you read about. But yeah, early season, I've, yeah, you know, I found them literally in pine forest looking for blue grouse. You know, I'm just like, what are you guys, what are you guys doing up here? <laughs> you shouldn't be, shoot, you shouldn't be here. Um, so yeah, that's, those are the sort of early season prairie birds, I guess. My, my buddy Tyler out in North Dakota, he always talks about, you know, September is kind of the month for sharp tails. And then he says that October is really the month for huns. Do you, do you kind of see that pattern as well? Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. I remember distinctly this one day this year driving, I was just driving back from, I can't remember somewhere and, uh, driving down this little two track road and <clears throat> there's uh there was a cut wheat field and it's got this really nice piece of cover and this beautiful Creek, uh, next to the cover. It's about four in the afternoon, and there was a storm predicted to roll in, and it just started rolling. You know that you could tell the te- like that day the temperature was dropping. Things were kind of there was a shift in the weather pattern, and I literally saw three separate groups of Huns just peel off these hillsides and fly over my truck and put down in this in this cut wheat, and I was just like, wow, it's happening. You know, it's like, and it and it was almost. Like they knew like, oh, yep, it's now going to be winter. We need to go (laughs) into these areas. And that where we are typically is not the greatest hun, uh, sort of known for huns, I guess. Um, But that is, yeah, typically September. I don't, I wouldn't say um, I target huns, if that makes sense. September is absolutely like a sharp sharp tail game. And then October is is more of a mixed bag kind of situation sure. i would say like you have a a lot more chance of a mixed bag especially you know especially when pheasant season rolls around and you're like oh we went for a walk along the creek and then we kind of went up and then we kind of walked along this cut wheat field or something and you come out with a couple of pheasants some sharp tails that have been loafing in some russian olives and a bunch of huns that were on the edge of the wheat field you know and you're just like oh that was a, an amazing walk with three different species of birds that I would say is not that uncommon yeah. to experience that. Um, but yeah, that would be typically, I would say September is for sharp tails and then October for huns. That seems to be, that's a pretty good, pretty good stab at it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That, that mixed bag. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I hear and makes me think I need to, I need to get back out West. You know, I'm, I'm pretty committed to my September trip and that, has really been a sharp tail trip. Like I have not got into huns really at all and not spending a lot of time focusing on it either. Like I'm just kind of there to do one thing and you know, I hope to yeah, find some they... huns, but I would love to get back out. Like even after pheasant, I've thought about like the first week in October kind of going back out, but man, even if I waited until pheasant season, that, that ability to kind of hunt all three species, in a in a pretty close proximity, I think that would be a blast. Yeah, and you still get, you know, if if you're really motivated, you can still get into some rough and bluegrass that time oh, of year too. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, I mean, you can really, really, yeah, really go at it if you want to. Yeah, which is, yeah, you just have to probably drive a lot, but uh, yeah, you can make it happen. <laughs> Back on the on the sharp tails thing again, like I want to ask a, a little different way as far as this kind of like the timing of the season and different approaches. Like if let's say it was Halloween, October 31st, end of October, and somebody said, you know, you had to go out and hunt sharp tails that day. Would you do anything yeah. different? Would you be in different cover? Like how would you approach yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Uh, I would probably be looking for like big, deep drawers full of like Russian olives okay. and yeah. cherries and things like that. I wouldn't be um, not to say you couldn't find them out on the right, prairie, right, but right. you probably got more chance of finding them roosting in those trees and stuff like that. Um, that would be, yeah, I would be looking more for those kind of like, oh, there's a big cut wheat field and there's a couple of big deep drawers that kind of come off the top. You know, there's like a bet, like say there's a wheat field that's like on a big bench and then there's a couple of deep drawers that kind of roll off that down into a creek bottom or something of that nature. That's where I'd be looking would be in those drawers kind of coming down off the wheat field because they can, you know, obviously they can feed on that wheat and then they can just, you know, they they can jump in those Russian olives and that thicker cover to obviously take take shelter from yep. winter storms and things like that. And and honestly, that time of year they don't necessarily play ball for a pointing dog. You know, they can kind of mm-hmm. get <clears throat> the dog will get pointed, let's say, and then you get within fifty, sixty yards of that dog, and they're oh, gone. Yeah, off the, yeah, they they're just gone. And yeah, so I think a lot of not yeah, I think sometimes it's you either have to have a really good dog and some luck go your way sure. or it's like or you're just getting lucky <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know that one happens to fly kind of the opposite direction to his friends or yeah, yeah. you kind of um <clears throat> you have to be a bit more um tactical i guess on how you'd approach the cover like okay if i was a bird they're probably going to be here so instead of approaching from the top where they can see you maybe we can like try to you know approach from the bottom where they can't see you know that you can't you start getting a little more tactical about it yeah, yeah. rather than just kind of early season, September, you've got, you know, your guns broke over your shoulder and you're probably talking to your friend whilst just like, you know, casually walking through the prairie and all of a sudden you, you know, you, whatever device you have vibrates or something, letting you know that your dog stopped and yeah. uh, you look up and you're like, Oh, perfect. We'll just casually wander over there. And you know, if there's a nice dog on point and, 20, 30 yards in front of it, there's a nice group of sharp tails who <laughs> casually popcorn flush. And you're like, oh, this is, I mean, it doesn't get, it's about as romantic as it gets right, out there, you know, right. just like, oh, this is, this is pretty luxurious and casual. I just shoot that one, shoot that one. And life's good. Whereas early, later on in the season, it's just like, oh my God, these birds just peeling out everywhere. Where did they come from? Where are they going? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. completely different, yeah, it's a different tactic for sure. I definitely have, have experienced that sort of, uh, easy opportunity but yeah I've, I've had plenty of frustrating moments out there as well which is really what what makes it upland hunting and what makes us all love it so much right yeah that, and i think those sharp tails to me personally and there's probably a reason a bunch of guys go up and train on them early season is because that they're, they're so good to train on for, yeah. a, for a young pointing dog that because they popcorn flush like that so mm-hmm. if the dog kind of makes a mistake you can you have another opportunity to get the dog back into that situation to try and get a bird pointed and things like that and that's really like going up there the month prior to the season starting you can kind of iron out a lot of those a lot of those you know you can kind of get a lot of those kinks ironed out and worked out on those birds with the young dogs and they can sort of figure them out a little bit better um and they're really like yeah for me it's uh, like invaluable especially if you're trying to sort of create or train or create a wild bird dog yeah um those early season sharp tails are money in the bank yeah with those dogs so that's yeah it's a good reason it's a good reason to go up there absolutely so we're talking a lot about 
kind of pointing dogs. I know you run flushing dogs as well. I've thought about this quite a bit. Like, how yeah. do you, let's talk about hunting the prairie country, huns and or sharp tails with flushing dogs. Do you, this is something I was thinking about last week when I knew I was going to talk to you. Is it as simple as go to the same cover and work it a little different way? Or would you look for a different cover with your flushing dogs? And if you're trying, let's say sharp tails, for example. Um, yeah, great question. I typically don't put flushing dogs down the prairie. They kind of have no business there, in my opinion, just because I have these wonderful pointing dogs <laughs> that take care of that for me. Yeah. Um, but if you if you didn't have that uh, luxury of owning a herd of dogs like I do, um, and you just <laughs> had a couple of flushing dogs, then I would be absolutely you're you're looking for the same cover um, as a pointing dog. You're just going to do a significantly <laughs> more walking yeah um which good on you if you're up for it awesome there's no reason why you can't uh have the same opportunities but it's just gonna require a bit more walking and then but i would say typically with the flushing dogs and the sharp tail like up on the prairies in september i'm actually like on my days off or on an evening i'll take my flushing dogs up into the woods and run them on blue and rough grouse up mm. there um as opposed to uh, putting them, making them walk all the way through the prairies, trying to find some sharp tails. And then I think when those flushing dogs up there really come into their own is probably in October, November time, where the sort of the mixed bag situation unfolds a bit sure. more because you might be pheasant hunting. So you, I, I personally like love to use my flushing dogs for pheasant. That's sort of typically what a springer was designed for hunting that heavy and, cover and some of those draws yeah, and stuff absolutely yeah whether as a pointing dog can hunt that cover but it gets pointed and you you know the pheasants now run and it's 100 yards down yeah. the deal and yeah and it's just inconducive in my opinion so you put these flushing dogs on the ground and they root them out and it's and you can tell you can tell when the dog's sort of getting birdie as you like uh because typically the dogs know they're going to be on the ground for a few hours, so they don't maybe go charging full tilt <laughs> as soon as they get out of the truck. They kind of realize, oh, yeah, we need to pace ourselves a bit. And so you can sort of tell they'll be quartering or you'll be feeding them into cover. And you can just sort of tell by the dog's body language, like, oh, yeah, he's on a bird or he's tracking something or, hey, just get ready. He's acting a little more excited than he has been for the last 30 minutes. And so that's that's sort of when that really comes into play. And then, like we just sort of discussed with doing a loop like that, and then you might walk a little creek bottom where there could be some pheasant, but then you kind of walk up a draw, and up that draw you might move some sharp tails, and then you hit that wheat field at the top, and then there could be some huns in there. And uh, that time of year, I would absolutely, probably personally, I would rather have a flushing dog than a pointing dog, um, just because they're in gun range and potentially you're taking shots on birds that um are just kind of lifting if yeah. that makes sense like they're just kind of getting out of somewhere just because they see you approaching before you see them sort of thing and you might be taking a random pop shot at it or something and you need to send you need to be able to stop a dog and be able to send it on a blind retrieve uh which i find spaniels way easier to do that with than than i ever have with a pointing dog yeah um and i I also have a huge soft spot for spaniels, so I'm probably <laughs> I probably put them on the ground a lot more than maybe most people would in certain situations. But that's because I just enjoy how they run and how and I enjoy 
uh, how to hunt over them, I guess, uh, which I think a lot of people these days like to or are trying out this whole pointing flushing dog kind of combination where they you know they've got one pointing dog on the ground and then they have their flushing dog at heel or just kind of bouncing around in front of them yep and then uh you know dog gets pointing dog establishes a point and then now they've got a couple of options what to do with this flushing dog do they keep it at heel do they make it sit do they allow it to flush the bird there's many options um people obviously have their own opinions of it i have kind of mine um i used to think it was really cool um until i started to realize okay there's a dog on point and i've spent all summer long trying to make keep this dog nice and broke like a nice broke pointing dog and now there's this little tiny dog that gets to bounce around in front of it and flush birds and then there's this competition starts to happen and i saw it happen one season i was like oh wow i done i've undone like months of work in literally a couple of weeks perfect (laughs) so i was like and so and also then what happens is the pointing dog starts to get kind of ultimately he starts to move and break point because there's this other dog pressuring and he's like how come i have to stand here when this little guy gets or you know this little dog gets to bounce around in front of me and so there's a competition unfolds there and then also typically flushing dogs especially cockers will see because they're just wicked smart they'll see a pointing dog out there two or three hundred yards away and they go they dogs learn by association yeah and that little cocker goes oh I know exactly what that dog stopped there for. I bet just, you there's a bird over there. <laughs> yeah, and just yeah, and just beelines it to it, and you know, there's somebody, you know, you got somebody screaming across the prairie, "No, come back here!" <laughs> you know, and all the you know birds, you know, birds fly everywhere. Or, or if you've managed to keep your dog at heel and you feed, you know, you let your flushing dog go near the pointing dog, well, you'll watch that flushing dog just bounce around. He's not actively hunting. He just knows that he's going to get lucky as long as he keeps bouncing around in this area. At some point, he will flush a bird. And so I see that often and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And that's something I noticed a few years ago. I'm like, oh, these dogs aren't actually sort of using the wind or using their noses anymore. They're just simply ripping around in some erratic pattern because they know as long as they do that at some point birds will lift rather than like oh taking the dog and being like hey the wind's coming from this direction just like you would a pointing dog and working that dog with the wind or using the wind direction to your advantage and letting that flushing dog find its own birds um the dogs are kind of they're too smart for their own good in that you know they're they're taking the path of least resistance and they're just they're figuring out a different way to do it where and it comes back to this idea that we want before our dogs start hunting in braces and doing all this other, you know, a dog has to learn how to be a hunter itself as an individual, Absolutely. ideally. Yeah. Right. And then you can talk yeah. about this other stuff, but yeah. Yeah. And that, and so that's like a great, a great point to make is yes, I still hunt flushing dogs and pointing dogs together. Yeah. I've just, I've just sort of adapted and developed my own sort of ways of thinking about it a little differently. And so now if I do decide to do that, it's normally with an older pointing dog who's had a bunch of seasons hunted over it. And it's hopefully it's, you know, for the most part, it's nice and broken. It knows how to, it has manners around birds. And then I have a flushing dog that is seasoned also that is made, you know, the, the flushing dog itself has manners as in, 
it is steady to wing like it's it's steady to the flush it when it flushes it sits yep. it's, it has manners also and that way you haven't got this combination of like oh here's a young pointing dog and a steady older flushing dog or vice versa and it can just i see more problems being created by that so i don't discourage people from wanting to do that because when it all comes together it's fantastic mm-hmm. and it does work really well but it I wouldn't recommend doing that like off the get go, if that makes sense. It would be like, Hey, let that pointing dog have two or three years under its belt. Let that flushing dog also just hunt it separately yeah. for two or three years. And then later on in their life stages, kind of, then you can kind of marry the two together and you end up with something that can be really special yeah. um, or something that's used for in the right, like, uh, back in California would be a good example. It's like, okay, I'm going to hunt valley quail who almost have no manners. Uh, they'll wild flush on a dog. Mm-hmm. They will hold, they will work really nicely for a pointing dog. They'll run, they'll do all sorts of weird, wonderful things. And it, me personally, I've found that it is an advantage to have a pointing and flushing dog on the ground, uh, seasoned dogs, because you can have that dog on point in some thick sagebrush and you're like well if i walk in there these birds are just going to run around on the ground and escape flush out the other side what yeah 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 or you can just stand there and be like all right get ready you know and send in the cocker and it goes berserk in there and it makes the birds flush instead of run and then you actually get shooting opportunities so that can so it has its advantages when it's used in the correct manner um or, or not the correct manner or I guess, in my mind, the correct manner. Yeah, yeah. I should say everybody. Everybody's obviously entitled to do their own, yeah, their own thing with their own dogs. But that's just how I have success with it. Whether it's if I was going, sometimes I'll bring one or two of my older cockers with me chucker hunting, and that's purely, honestly, for just like retrieves. Like, oh, I'm going into this place where it's really like there's some big deep canyons, and oh, we're going to wingtip a bird. And frankly, I don't feel like going 300 yards down, <laughs> down town and up and across where i can you know it's a test of a good spaniel to give it a blind or a solid mark and watch it go and make a big huge retrieve like that that's you know that's where i would use those in say chucker and a chucker hunting situation um but that's and that's yeah that's just what i found that works for me and i think that's important is you guys will just find out what works yeah best for them basically yeah that's there's you know i'm sure you get it in the i look at all of the rough grouse cover that you get and woodcock cover that you guys run and i i wouldn't want to go up there at all with any of my pointing dogs that that to me just like i uh, my i get i'm rubbing my hands getting excited thinking wow i would love to throw down like have three cockers on the ground and have two at heel and have one working for a bit and then kind of rotate them out like that and me personally just because i love hunting over spaniels yep. and i'm used to that that's how i would love to hunt that cover i just look at it and i'm just drawn to it being like oh my god that seems like that seems like cocker cover if ever there was made if ever there was cover made for a certain type of dog i feel like it was that whether as i feel like some of my pointers would just come out completely just yeah i'd lose them for forever <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> yeah. i'd be like well, there was no need for you to run 300 yards in there, and now we'll probably won't see you for another two or three days. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, the, like, dog gets on the other side of the swamp, and yeah, then things get interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's 
so that's just how I kind of like try and uh, marry up the right dog for the right cover, perhaps. And uh, and I'm just a bit more experienced with spaniels in a, uh, uh, because I've grown up with them my whole life, yep. and so I kind of I also enjoy. I know how they operate and I enjoy how they run and I can sort of, I can sort of even so maybe some uh, type of bird or a certain type of cover isn't necessarily what I would deem like good for a spaniel. I can definitely make it work if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like desert quail can be an absolute riot hunting scale quail with spaniels because you probably heard the stories of guys like, Oh yeah, you need tennis shoes to hunt scale quail. Yes. They'll, just, they'll yep. run forever and things like that. But I've also had amazing points with scalies and just like dogs pointed and you can physically see the bird right there, you know, like, Oh, there's a pair of scalies hidden behind this bush and they're holding so tight. And, and so if you've got a dog that's got really good manners around birds, that can happen, but it's also fun to put a flushing dog on the ground and those things are running like crazy. And if you've got a little, if you can handle your dog and you can make it cast out a bit further than you perhaps normally would let it, and it can almost come and get those birds and almost like flush them back towards yeah, you. Kind of, yeah, or, you they know, can you like can almost figure like eighty. And yeah, yep. yeah, you can definitely work them. It can be you can have an absolute riot down there with those birds because they're, they're, the birds are almost like ah, gotcha, and then all of a sudden this little tiny dog comes ripping around the corner and they're like oh god we didn't expect that and then they all bust up singles go everywhere and then that's when it gets really exciting because now you've got this flushing dog who's going around and checking every single bush every single crevice for a bird and there's singles popping everywhere and it's fast and furious and it's um yeah there's a whole lot of action it can be yeah it can be there's a lot of it can be a lot of fun yeah <laughs> Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yeah, that's that's the the kind of nice thing about having the the combination of both breeds of dog. Um, yeah. And I don't think, I don't think one is better than the other. Um, well, that's not true given certain types of cover, obviously, but yeah, you've got your, I mean, you've laid it out here in this conversation, like how you sort of think about playing a dog to its strengths and to its advantages, uh, right? Using the cover and the birds absolutely. and yeah, choosing which dog you think is going to perform better. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And there's some, and there's some dogs, just personalities, you know, weirdly, you're just like, oh, this dog just isn't going to go well in that kind of cover or, you know, that sort of thing. Sometimes that plays into it. Or I have a little tiny setter who, gosh, she 
barely weighs. She probably weighs like 28 pounds. Oh, wow. She's tiny. I think my yeah, she's a little, little setter is small, but she's bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, she's a little, she's a tiny thing. Does she just fly? Yeah, she sort of, it's funny. Okay. She bounces around on the prairie. She looks like a little fox when she's out there hunting. And, <laughs> and that dog, I, I'm sort of, I keep a, I try and keep a rough record of like which dogs, how many, which dogs got how many cubbies pointed okay. and how much ground time they had. I just, just to give me a rough idea of what dogs are doing, what, where they're at and maybe where I need to like help them out sort of in the off season or something yep. or in a, on a day off, I can kind of like, Oh yeah, this dog seemed like it was struggling or it needs a few, you know, it needs a win or something like that. But that little dog in the right terrain is unbelievably productive. She isn't a big running dog. She'd probably work really well in the grouse. Woods. She only runs about, I mean, a big move for her would be 150, maybe 200 yards at best. Like and that's, that would be and that's in the her. open country too. So yeah, yeah she would be a good grouse yeah. dog, probably rough grouse dog. Yeah. And so, yeah, and that is in open country. Uh, but when you put her, when you put her on a little bench or there's a certain area where she's, where you know you 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 think you might know where some birds are and it's sort of this certain area and I will put her down every time because she's so good at finding birds and so good at getting them pointed and her manners around those birds are um are, are just great and so she ends up being uh, a lot of people kind of blink at this because they'll be like oh I'm surprised you you know that dog kind of makes it for you or whatever i'm just like i would never get rid of this dog she's awesome like <laughs> because they don't have and i think that's a misconception i think people out west are like you need big running dogs right. and da, da, da. it's like it's like no you need bird finders yes and that and and that is the difference and she is a bird finder and that and that's what's huge about her is uh, sure i can take her on the same walk as i would one of my bigger running pointing dogs but she's gonna she it might we might <laughs> we might walk a bit further with her, but we're still, she's pro she will find just as many birds as one of my, as one of my like top pointers, if that makes sense. And so that's, I think the big, the big sort of, uh, misconception is like, Oh, you need a huge running dog. It's like, no, you don't. You, well, it helps. But if that dog is a bird finder, that's the difference. Yeah. It's like you, if that dog is a bird finder, that's, that's what I am looking for is like, can they find birds? I'm not too worried about the distance that they find them at, if that makes sense. But, you know, it, it, and sometimes, uh, you know, I have one female pointer who I love to pieces and she runs pretty big and, you know, she punches out there. She might be six, 800 yards out there and on point. And I personally, I, I enjoy that about her. But a lot of guys might not because they look at that and they go, oh, my God, we've got to walk all that way. Yeah, that's okay. a long you know, and, ways to go. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, So and that's and that can kind of be in a funny way intimidating. Or some people are like, oh, my God, she's just running off. Where did she go? And it's like, no, she's actually not running off. She's she's a smart cookie. She's she she actually knows where we are. Like, I've never lost this dog. Yep. She knows where we are and she checks in. She gets to a ridge. She'll throw her head. Oh, the human's still going that way. OK, I'll, you know, I'll kind yep. of swing around and follow them and. And so it's nice to have, obviously I'm a little different to most people where, cause I have a nice string, you know, I have, I'm fortunate enough to have a big string of dogs that yeah. I can have different dogs doing different things. But I think that's really the takeaway from it is 
it's really important to have bird finding dogs. They don't necessarily have to be big running dogs, but they have to be bird finders. And they also have to have great manners and character around wild, for me anyway, wild birds. Yeah. Well, especially the dog at 600 yards, that dog better be... (laughs) better be waiting for you to get there and not can you imagine if you had a dog out there at 600 yards on point you walk 590 yards and then the last 10 yards the dog moves in i mean i mean if she stands if she stands there for 20 minutes for you to get there she's probably not moving when you do get there but that's the importance of manners right absolutely yeah or or you get there and there's no birds oh uh, yeah <laughs> yeah, or, yeah or there's like a rabbit gets out or there's mm-hmm. like oh that's like oh what are you doing and then they break point and they go and dig up a mouse hole you're like okay <laughs> we back to the drawing board. that can get frustrating um, real fast yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah but that's stuff that young dogs do all the time yes. you know that's you know that's 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 a young dog thing and that's okay they they can we can allow them to do that stuff but but sort of bringing it back to flushing dogs a little bit, I think a lot of people have this idea that they just bounce around and, you know, they, they you know, bounce around and they just like, oh, I just stumbled across a bird. If, if that's when you go to a field trial with these guys, you will realize very quickly that it's all about the wind and how those dogs run the wind and how you set them up to make these finds. And you can watch a, you can watch a little cocker just hit the wind perfectly smell that bird from like anywhere from like 30 to 50 yards away and just on a straight just straight line it straight into the bird yeah and that i look at that and go wow that dog is a bird finder that dog just turned around caught the scent of that and just plowed into that bird and those are the things that i look at that i think in flushing dogs that a lot of people sort of maybe don't see or they kind of miss they think they're these cute little things that bounce around and they just sort of randomly mm-hmm. you know find birds and they flush them and it's like they know they have a nose they know how to find and when they when they work out how to use it that's when you've got a serious piece of kit on your hands that becomes a whole lot of fun when those little when those little flushing dogs figure out how to use their nose properly and you set them up in the in a up for success in that wind direction it can be it, it can be very exciting yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's yeah and that's really the when i'm training those flushing dogs i i like to run them on and this is me personally a lot of trial guys don't necessarily hunt their dogs too much on wild birds because they don't want to sort of ruin their trial dogs which i sort of understand I run my dogs a lot on wild birds and I just have, they have the same rules apply to them, whether they're a field trial or not. If you produce a bird, hopefully you sit and you, you're steady on your bird. And if you are, I'll attempt to try and shoot it for you. And if you're not, I simply won't. And that way they become bird finders and they learn how to find birds and they check every single crevice and every single thing and they create their own patterns. And uh, that that's just something that I found that works for me. So during the hunting season, I'll hunt the heck out of my sort of my fancy trial dogs. And then in January, you know, we do a very specific training scenarios to set them up in a field trial. Cause obviously it's not, they're trying to simulate hunting, but there's also some random other rules that yeah. <laughs> apply in a field trial that they have to abide by. Um, and so I've got the whole month of January pretty much to kind of dial them in and get them sort of hopefully straightened out and ready for the the trial season. And then when you go to a field trial, you can really, I 
guess I can anyway. I can kind of look at some dogs and be like, oh, that dog knows how to find, you know, oh, that dog's a bird finder. He knows how to find birds. He, that guy probably hunts his birds. That dog, sorry, ugh. that guy probably hunts his dog a lot on wild birds. You know, you can kind of see it a little bit, you know. Sure. What is it about wild birds that might negatively affect your trial dog? What do they do? Uh, so in a field trial, it's the dog is supposed to, so for those that don't know anything about Say spaniel field trials. Uh, I'll try. I'm and raising my hand over it. here, Maddie. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. I'll try and make it. I'll try and uh, set the scene here pretty there. quick. So you've got um, there's a a line of flags, and there's typically say 20 flags, and they're spaced out at about 40 yards apart, and in a in a sort of a line, or it can be in a any sort of shape really, but typically in a kind of a line. And it's there's a course. That's the course, and that's the center line, and then. There's three series. There's a first, second, and a third series. So the first and second series. So the first series, you are on one side of the course and you are braced against somebody else who is on the other side of the course. And you have a bird planters that are about 100 to 200 yards ahead of you walking down that center line. And every so often they'll dip in and plant either a pheasant or a chucker, typically. And you are braced against this other person and you have each of you as judge. There is a judge standing behind both of you there is a center gun and there is a wing gun on either side. And then you have to have two bird contacts in your first series in order to get you through to the second series. And so your dog, you cast it off and it has to cover the, you get judged on course coverage. So your dogs have to cover the course and then it gets judged on the finds. So how it finds that bird. And when it does find the bird, so your dog's you know cutting left, cutting right, quartering nicely. And then it you know smells a bird flushes the bird you'll get judged on how that dog finds it and flushes it and when it flushes it it's got to sit there nicely hopefully the bird flies you know flies out nicely mm-hmm. and the gunner shoots the bird for you uh, about let's say 30 or 40 yards away it drops and you just have to call the dog's name or you can say fetch or how, whatever you say yeah. so you're not allowed to handle the dog into the retrieve the dog has to basically mark the bird so when it flushes it the dog is trying to watch the bird the whole time it gets shot you send the dog for the bird it runs out there and makes a retrieve that is it in an essence and your brace mate on the other side is doing the same thing now where it gets a little complicated is if your brace mate puts up a bird you have to stop your dog. Your dog has to honor that other dog, basically. And so if, especially the reason being is if the bird is put up on the right side of the course and it flies left and you're on the left side of the course and the gunner shoots it, that dog has to run past your dog. So your dog has to remain nice, cool, calm, and collected and steady whilst that other dog is basically working out in front of it or near it somewhere. And so there has to be sort of a level of compliance. And then you get two bird contacts. So that could be, uh, it's, these are planted birds. So sometimes they don't fly and the dog runs in there and traps them and just brings them back. That's okay. That's a contact. Or your dog flushes it and sits and does everything right. But unfortunately the gunner misses it. So you, you know, it's a no bird. That's absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with that. You get to call your dog in and the judge says, okay, we'll see you on the other side. And then you run under the other judge and the same thing happens. You get two contacts and then after the first and second series, the judges have a little powwow and they decide which dogs they really enjoyed watch, you know, running. And then they bring you back to the third series, which is like the finals. And you're not braced against anybody else, but you're both judges are watching you and they're kind of deciding if you're like it, what they like or dislike about your dog compared to the other dogs. So they've got, they're really watching every 
every move that dog makes and how it makes it. And then and you get two bird contacts there. And then you, you know, and then sort of the placements are decided off of that. But so it's simulating hunting, but in a field trial, in a field trial versus wild birds is in a field trial, it's sort of like a, uh, there's a course there's a and sometimes you're in you might be in an area of a course where in a in a hunting situation you would never find a bird there if you know what i mean like you'd walk up yeah. and you'd be like oh a pheasant or a chucker would never live out here in this area but they exist and so you might have a dog that hunts a lot and the this field trial might be there might be like this i think i see where you're going with this now yeah and so there might be this flat area and then it might roll off into a creek bottom. Now, if you've got a little hunting dog and you cast your dog off, that dog might not run out in front of you. It might just go to the left and zip down into this creek and bounce along this creek. Gotcha. It associates like, yep. you know, it's like, oh, birds are going to live down here. Why would they, why are you walking up there? Come on, <laughs> Hey, come on, come down here with me. This is where they're going to live. Yeah. You got a dog, again, being smart, looking for those objectives, the things that it's found birds before and... Yeah. Reality being not every field trial setup is going to be able to accommodate that. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Correct. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. And you're in the field trial, you're trying to give everybody a fair right. Like everybody the same course if you like. So it would be really difficult to be like, okay, we're going to walk along this creek. Oh, but the creek then stops and then it changes into this kind of cover and this kind of cover and this kind of cover whereas if you if you take that course and you just put it out in a nice sort of field with nice tall grass it, it's it's like the same playing field for everyone if that sort of makes yep, sense yeah and it's not always the case but that that would be just an easy uh an easy way to try and explain it and but the thing with wild birds is you've got uh, a pheasant for instance well that pheasant's going to run 300 yards that pheasant's going to do wild flush on you it's going to do all these weird things which don't really typically happen necessarily in a field trial and so or you could hit like the i'm sure everybody's been pheasant hunting and they hit the the honey hole you know and they they go in there and all of a sudden it's like a roman candle of pheasants and they just come pouring out of these ditches and that is a lot of stimulation for a dog there's no two questions about you know that's like oh my god there's like you know 20 birds just came peeling out of these cattails wow that's a lot of stimulation whether it's in a field trial that would never happen and so there's just a lot of differences or it's that classic example where this season like i have a little cocker that's he's kind of an older dog now and i've hunted him a lot on wild birds and but he can't be he can't this year i ran him in a couple of field trials and he's just not a field trial dog so i'm just not going to run him anymore because he is too smart for the game in a funny way as in like i cast him off the line and he loops over and hit i watched him do this and i was like you little toe rag and he goes cast off and he hits the center line and he just runs straight down the center line and he smells where that bird planter went in and then he just goes in where the bird planter went in and then produces the bird and he's just stood there looking at me like hey found it <laughs> you know he just like yeah that's you know okay little buddy that's not really what we were supposed to do out here nice try <laughs> and so uh, that obviously doesn't look good, and that, but that's just like a smart. It's just a really smart dog, yeah. um, and he also doesn't look. He also, when he hunts, he doesn't have. It, uh, he's a great hunting dog, but he's not. 
he doesn't have this class and style and flow and flair that some of those field trial dogs have, which are absolutely stunning to watch. He's kind of just like, you know, he's kind of just ambling, you know, ambling through the countryside sort of thing. And <laughs> he's just, yeah, he's not, he's not very classy necessarily, but he certainly knows how to find birds. So not every, not every dog is a field trial dog. Not every dog is a hunting dog, if that sure. makes sense. Yeah. Like, that's why it's, and you just, unfor- yeah, fortunately or unfortunately, that's just the nature of it. And I guess, yeah, that's just how it is. <laughs> and you can create, um, you can create little monsters by hunting them on a lot of wild birds. And you know, as well as I do, I'm sure we've all been there. I know I have myself. You maybe you haven't been out for a, a bit or you've been frustrated because you've seen this dog that you have just knock and chase birds. Oh, it's doing it all the time. And then, or something. And then eventually, you know, just a random bird gets up and you're like, Oh, I'll take that. And you shoot it. Well, in a field trial situation, you, you just wouldn't want to do that for a dog because you're rewarding it unnecessarily. Right, and right. so like you could, you could be hunting pheasant and these pheasant are just getting up wild, for instance, and you're like, oh, sweet, this one's coming my way. Bang, and you shoot it. And that's that might not be if you're trying to have a field trial quality dog that possesses certain manners. That might not be conducive for the dog, if that makes sense. So you might have self-control, but the, your friend that you decided to bring along is just like, God, there's birds everywhere. This is great. Bang, 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 bang. You're yeah. like, no, don't shoot. You know, I don't want my – the dog wasn't steady or the dog didn't behave in this certain manner whether it's yeah, and that's and that's so, pointing dogs and flushing dogs you know there's, there's absolutely instances yep. <laughs> where, yeah you got to be careful when absolutely. you're when you're shooting and rewarding exhibited behaviors yeah. and stuff yeah it's a real fine line yep. that, um of, of when and when it's acceptable and not acceptable and i think it, it takes a lot of time and skill to sort of decide that and in some cases like we really need to try and reward this dog we have yep. to like you have to make this shot which weirdly is a pressure that i that some people don't actually experience sometimes you're like oh i i need like it needs this one you know like i better be <laughs> i better get it and so that i think that's i think that's a good point and i think that was one of the more nuanced things that it was one of the more challenging things for me to understand as i got my pointing dogs and was you know learning how to develop them and when to reward them and when to not and i've talked about this a bunch on this show like really at the beginning i was just worried about you know shooting anything not pointed for fear of of you know creating a monster out of my pointing dog and you know now looking back like there are times where you know i just have a much much better sense of what my dogs are doing in the cooperation level and you know what birds i can and can't shoot and that's Man, I don't know, like other than having a good mentor and somebody to point that stuff out to you, it just, it takes time and it takes reading your dogs and knowing, knowing that. But that is, like you said, that's one of the, it's a fine line. It's one of the more nuanced things with developing bird dogs, I think. I think that's honestly why a lot of guys end up sending dogs to trainers. Yeah. Well, that's certainly why I have a lot of my, honestly, <laughs> my clients because. Speaking from experience. They, yeah. yeah. They, you know, they have, they I'm fortunate enough where it's my job. I get to go during the hunting season. Yeah. I am literally out there every day with a shotgun over my shoulder. Um, either, you know, potentially trying to reward a dog or get a dog into a situation to set them up for success. Yeah. 
And so I have the ability to have that self-control to be able to be like, oh, the dog behave like, oh, we'll give the dog the benefit of the doubt. Let's try and kill this bird. Or, oh, I don't want to shoot this bird, but I want to just pull off a shot because I want the dog to be steady. The bird is out of gun range, but it did a nice thing. And so there's all these weird little things that can happen out there in the field that you have to make a judgment call very quickly on. And as somebody who trains dogs, that's what I do that's my profession whether it's uh, uh, maybe you get to hunt like uh every other weekend or something and it's sunday afternoon and you're just chomping at the bit to get out and finally you found like a you, you know you've got a cut maybe you're a family guy you have some kids your wife says okay go, you know i'll look after the kids or right. something and, and you get you've got that small little window of opportunity mm-hmm. to go out and have fun with your dog the dog's bouncing around out there and you haven't seen a bird for a few hours and you're getting back near the truck you're like okay time to call it a day and you're going back to the truck and there it is the classic truck you know the classic point 200 yards away from the truck or something because <laughs> yep. that bird, you know had you just walked right instead of left when you stepped out of the truck yeah kind of scenario and you're like oh here it is sweet and the dog's pointed and all of a sudden the dog decides to break or it does or it does something perhaps it shouldn't do mm-hmm. um and then but you didn't think about that you you just you're just so happy that there's a bird because that's what you came yeah. out to find and your and day do. is about to be and, over and yeah yep, all and those factors like, they all go out the window and your yeah. shotgun gets mounted and you've got a big old smile on your face and you're like bang bang <laughs> you, know, you, you, you shoot at this bird and it, it's irrelevant whatever that dog was doing when out the window you didn't and that's absolutely fine i i get it i understand it i've been there myself and so i understand that and that's honestly probably why people put dogs with trainers is so the dog so they can make all those decisions so hopefully when you get your dog back you don't have to think about that because the dog hopefully is is at a certain stage in its life where it's trained so you can you know your trainer will say hey go out and have fun shoot the birds for the dogs you know it's it's good to go sort of thing um if that makes any sense so you don't have to worry about that whether it's it's, uh, yeah uh yeah hopefully that makes some sense yeah no i I I definitely (laughs) am familiar with that and i think you know i think most people listening would be the pressures and the pulls of you know, hunting season and your enjoyment and limited time. I mean, I think we've all probably experienced that to varying degrees and depending on where you're at in your hunting and, and bird dog, you know, experience level, like you may, you may have that very much under control and not be, yeah. you know, trigger happy or eager to, to shoot a bird like that, but you might be just starting out and you're, you're sort of, you know, hungry for that success and, and wanting to be successful with you and your dog. And I don't know, it, it, it is a, it's not, I wouldn't say it's an easy thing to decipher. Um, but it, but with no. time, with time and experience, you kind of develop your own way about it. Right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the only way you can do that is by time and experience. Mm-hmm. And I would say a lot, I think puppies are great for the most part. I mean, I actually don't necessarily love puppies, but just, <laughs> what? Uh, but, but I, yeah, I know. Yeah. I have them all the time. Ironically, <laughs> it seems like every other month a puppy arrives at the kennel and which is great. But I was like, oh, okay. Uh, but the, um, <laughs> I think for that reason, like uh, people, and this is just my opinion, obviously, which doesn't really count for much, especially if you ask my wife, but, um, is, uh, is if you're getting into upland hunting and you there's a, a million different choices on bird dogs out there right. and you're like oh i don't know which one to get like oh my friend has a gsp so i think i'll get a gsp and he got it from this breeder so i'll get it from that breeder 
and you're thinking to yourself, this dog is going to be exactly the same as my friend's dog. And then you get that dog and you go, oh, it doesn't do this like my friend's dog. It doesn't do that like my friend's dog. Mm-hmm. And it's, they're all, those dogs are all like humans. You know, we're all, they're all weird and wonderful and they have their own personalities and quirks and they're all individual. And so typically when a client's phones up and they're normally they're phoning up because they're curious about these little flushing dogs, which I kind of love. Yeah. But I always recommend, I'm like, Hey, if you're kind of getting into this, buy a started dog. Somebody's already done that a lot of typically from a financial point of view, it might be kind of a lot of money initially to invest in a dog. Yeah. If you look at it, what the, the training it's had on it and all the rest of it, it's actually cheaper and all of the major major pitfalls that have been avoided you know so you the amateur handler don't have to avoid those pitfalls yeah absolutely and you can pick out the flavor of dog you want you can pick out the color you can pick out this you know it's like some guy phones me up i want an orange uh white and orange setter and i'm like fantastic (laughs) i don't have any but i do know somebody who does like give this guy a call and you know or you can you know i really want a jet black cocker spaniel great i've got one or two you know there's so there's the nice thing about getting a started dog is if you have because i don't really care about what color they are um i care about more what's between the ears but i i don't discredit people who want a a little a certain color or certain it's very common uh, sex of dog or and i think that's great whatever you're into yeah the cool thing about buying started dogs is you can find that somebody out there will have a really nice started dog that is the breed you're looking for or the color you're looking for or whatever and it will just make your life significantly especially if you're getting into it it just make it easier and it will speed up and Typically what happens is guys end up getting like one, a started dog to sort of start off with, and then they go and buy a puppy because they kind of feel confident. Sure. Yeah. Like, Oh, I got the dog and we had a great season because typically what happens, you get that puppy in the spring and you're desperately trying to get it ready to take it hunting that in, you know, (laughs) to take it hunting that coming season. Like, it's like a race to like, we got to get it pointing birds or, flushing birds or gun conditioning and you know all this stuff and you're it's like this you're that story like sounds very familiar a, to me <laughs> yeah yeah and you're like okay i got it in march and i need it you know it's september 1st and we're trying to get to the prairie and it needs to be pointing pigeons and or it needs to be you know having being introduced to the gun and it needs to have intro to e-collar oh my god i've got a lot of work to do between now and then and it's like this frantic race to try and get this little puppy ready to go out and hunt with you in september or whenever your hunting season starts and and sometimes i'm like slow it down you know i don't typically and this is just me that everybody does it differently but the spaniels for instance i have three 10 month old puppies right now not a none of them have ever seen a bird Hmm. and a lot of people will be like oh but they're bird dogs and it's like yeah yeah they are they, I, I know what pedigrees they are. I know what's behind them. They will hunt. They will find birds. There, there's no. I have no doubt in my mind. Just like typical, if you buy a pointing dog from a good breed, I know you get your dogs from uh, Jerry, I believe, yeah. who's obviously a great resource up there. And I know a lot of friends of mine who have dogs from Jerry, and a lot. I mean, they're staggeringly beautiful. But the thing is, is Jerry's put in a lot of time and effort and research into where he gets his dogs from, yeah. da da da, etc. And at some stage, those dogs will point a bird. 
because that's in their genetics. Yeah. It's going to happen. Some dogs point dog, you know, point birds at fresh straight out of the box. Like right now, I have two setters puppies. One of them, <clears throat> one of them's older, one of them's younger. But the older one, the older one, she's nearly a year old now, and she's still not pointed a bird. Am I worried? No. She's going to go up to the prairie. She's done with pigeons. Like she hasn't even pointed a pigeon, really. But it doesn't worry me at all because I know what's behind her. She'll go to the prairies and I bet you she'll be pointing birds up there. She's going to run. She's going to make a lot of mistakes and she's going to knock and chase an awful lot of birds. But eventually she will point a bird. I know it. I've got a young guy who's five, six months old right now. First bird I put out for him, pointed it straight away. Second bird, same deal, pointed it straight away. Third bird, pointed it straight away. No No question at all. Just ran along, smelt the bird and went whack. And I'm like, all right, little man, that's pretty cool. And so they all develop at different stages. And And you know that, you're confident. So again, the point being there is you're not worried about it, but the person with their first dog is probably going to be riding an emotional roller coaster, you know, whether the dog points or doesn't point. Yeah. Yes. And then, or or the same with the Spaniels. Like I had, I have this really wonderful lady. um, Her name's Paige. She'll probably kill me for mentioning her, but. I could always cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's all right. She's, she's, she's probably be fine with it. But so we (laughs) both have Cocker Spaniels. I got her, we both have a little Spaniel, Cocker Spaniels out of the same litter. She has one, I have one. And she's new to bird dogs. And I was, and I said, Paige, this is a great litter. I think you should get one. You know, she was looking for a a puppy and I was like, this is a good one. Get this one. So she gets this one. And every, probably once a week, she's texting me, messaging me, sending me videos. The dog's doing this. The dog's doing that. Am I doing it right? She's so worried about making mistakes with the puppy and making those wrong things or doing the wrong things. And I had a conversation with her last night and I was, and for a while and, and I just said, Hey, you're doing a great job. Yeah. Like what you're so focused on trying to do the right thing. That's brilliant. A lot of people won't be as diligent as you are. Right. And that's, and, and that can be really important to tell somebody because and basically what I told her, I was like, she was doing some treat training, some other bits and pieces. And I'm like, the dog's bored. Stop treat training and start doing these just, almost take it back a step and just do some retrieving stuff and you'll notice the focus of that dog will change and and she sent me a message this morning she's like oh my god amazing it did this this and this and i'm like yeah thing with cocker spaniels i always tell people is you've got to figure out 10 different ways to do the same one thing and that's the difference between a cocker and a springer you can throw a tennis ball for a springer in the same place 10 times and it'll run out and back out and back out and back no problem Cocker Spaniel, after the third time, it's like, oh, this is boring. Like, oh, I don't really want to do this anymore. And so you have to figure out how to do 10 different things, the same the same thing, 10 different ways. Gotcha. So yeah. you just got to, you have to outsmart them because they're really curious and they're funky little creatures. And they're all weird and wonderful in their own ways. But the point of me not these three 10-month-old puppies that I have that have never seen a bird, they're all introduced to the gun. And I can shoot a bumper for them, no problem. And they'll mark beautifully. They'll go out there. They have, and they can hunt. They'll hunt really hard for tennis balls. So I've already simulated hunting. It just isn't a bird because I don't need a bird, if that makes any sense. So they already know how to find things and use their nose because I've mimicked that in training with tennis balls and bumpers and things like that. 
So, and I might not even give them a pigeon, um, so to speak. We might just go straight up to the prairie and I might be like, oh, there's a, I just saw a, I just saw some sharp tails fly across the road and put down in the corner of that field. Oh, that's perfect. I'm just going to grab these little cocker puppies and just let them zip around out there and have a good old time knocking and chasing and flushing some birds. And that might be their first intro to, to birds. Yeah. And I have no doubt in my mind that these dogs aren't going to become bird dogs, if that makes sense. Even so, that at this stage in their life, they haven't seen a bird. And I think that's the huge difference between flushing dogs and pointing dogs, for me anyway, is flushing dogs at eight weeks old, I'm like, you know, here's a pigeon or, you know, like you're doing bird intro and things like that a lot earlier. Yeah. Whereas a flushing dog for me personally, I like to put all of the, the control, I guess, for lack of a better word, the control and everything and the behavior and the pattern and all the whistle commands I want it to do and all that kind of good stuff. I want it to do all of that first, just with tennis balls and bumpers. So I have their attention because if you give those little dogs birds too early, it can make them crazy and obsessed with birds only. Mm. And they're only going to want to really do bird stuff. And they don't care about a tennis ball or a bumper, which means in the off season, or if you're kind of trying to do some advanced training with them, it makes that really, really difficult. And, but everybody does things differently. But I mean, that's, I guess some of them, but some of them need it. Some you can see it in them. Like there's a couple of puppies I have that I'm like, oh, I'll probably give that dog a bird a little earlier just because it needs a little, um, it needs a little confidence booster. Whereas some of them I'm like, oh God, I'd be surprised if I give you a bird until you're a year old. Cause you're absolutely, you're a psychopath. And so, <laughs> you know, if you're crazy, you're this crazy about a tennis ball, yeah. you certainly don't need to know what a bird is because right. this could create an absolute monster. And I think that's, that's really the difference with flushing and pointing dogs is I see these guys and I've been guilty of it myself. I see these guys with flushing dogs that they get in the spring and they're trying to get them all dialed in for this coming season. And then they call me up halfway through or at the end of the season, they're like, yeah, this dog, I've got little Timmy, he's ripping around out there a hundred yards away, just flushing birds and he's not listening and he's not standing gun range and he's not doing this, that, and the other. I'm like, yeah, I, I wonder why. <laughs> and, and to me, it makes a lot of sense. I'm like, yeah, it's because the dog doesn't have any boundaries or doesn't, you haven't set the dog up for success or shown it how working together with those flushing dogs, you've got to work together. It has to understand that the human and it works together. And same with pointing dogs, but in a different realm. But yeah. especially with the flushing dogs, it's like, hey, you need, to, you need to listen and stay hooked up to me. And we, I will basically, you will be successful if you stay hooked up to me and you listen to what I say you will become way more successful. And so you can see it in them and they, they start to figure out real quick, oh yeah, that guy with the gun, if I stay near him and I do, and he peeps me and he turns me and he tells me to go in that bush, it's not because it, it's for a good reason. And typically, you know, you keep them into a, you know, you start feeding them in cover and you keep them in there and there's a tennis ball or there's a, you know, later on in life, that tennis ball then gets replaced with a bird they think you're the best person ever. They're like, wow, dad's a miracle worker. Every time he puts me into one of these bushes, you know, 50% of the time there's a bird in there, which mm -hmm. I love. These things are great. So I guess I should listen to him because he's setting me up to be successful. And, you know, birds flush out, you shoot the bird, they zip out there and they get their reward. And that's, 
I mean, that's it in essence. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. Trying to set the, you're trying to set the dog and the handler up for success. Absolutely. I think that's the real take on it. But yeah. Well, I, man, I, I very much appreciate the flushing dog conversation on, on today's episode. I, I don't know if like grass is greener would be the way to put it, but I, I just haven't hunted over them a lot and I'm eager to do so. You know, I love my pointing dogs, but going back to that conversation about, you know, some settings where, you know, flushing dog might have the advantage or, or it just sets up really well for, for what they do versus other scenarios where a pointing dog is kind of, you know, it's their bread and butter. I just, I, man, I'm eager to do more hunting over flushing dogs and uh, you got me excited about it. The, the the grass isn't greener. It's just a different type of grass, and it's yes. whether you like that, and, it, and it's whether you like that. I, I personally, I enjoy both pointing and flushing. Right, and, and that's where I appreciate your perspective. Yeah, yeah, and some people enjoy more flushing than pointing. Anyway, yeah, it's all whatever you like, yeah. <laughs> whatever you're into. Yeah. Well, this has been fun, man. We could, I, we, I, I got stuff on my list that we didn't get to. I'll have to bring you back on the show. But I gotta, I gotta run and pick up my four-year-old from preschool so i appreciate the conversation thank you for joining me on this episode of the bird shop podcast if folks wanted to get in touch with you or learn a little bit more about i know you're undergoing kind of the name change in the new website and stuff but is there a place you would send them or or contact information Yeah, absolutely yeah uh currently right now you can send me an email at matty m-a-t-t-y at heritagegundogs.com uh or you can find me on social media just facebook is my name matty rawlingson and then instagram is ov wing shooting which soon in the next week or two will probably switch to uh i say it will switch to heritage dot gun dogs so yeah just look out for that all right man you getting outside with the dogs today what's your plan absolutely yeah yep <laughs> yeah spring i don't know every day i arrive at the kennel and i just sort of yeah uh every day is a new day so i'll yeah no doubt i'll be i'll be running some pointing dogs and some flushing dogs and doing something with both breeds today that's for sure uh what that is i've i I don't know just yet but something will happen (laughs) good deal buddy well you enjoy that california weather i will i will catch up with you i gotta run for today but thanks again for joining us on this episode of the bird shop podcast take care man thanks for having me on thank you Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. 
Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundoggy Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.